the Tenuous Links podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello, Barons, and welcome to another exciting, potentially, Tenuous Links podcast. Now, I've given Damo the week off to work on our next awesome edition of Barron's Life Digital Golf and Lifestyle Magazine and scraping the bottom of the barrel uh, of subbed in super coach, serial name dropper and caddy to the stars, Dion Kipping. Welcome back, Kipper. <laughs> Been a while and uh, this is as low as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I've got a feeling you're going to bring stuff to the table that is out of this world and I can't wait because today, listeners, we are we're going to take off in a number of different directions that all – kind of relate to golf um, in one way, shape or form, there's likely to be a rant or otherwise. But without any further ado, we made a prediction um, during the year about this Brooks and Bryson thing and whether or not the fact that they were actually best mates and it was all a load of crap to win this PIP rubbish incentive that the um, PJ have put up. So now they're having, Kipper, and I know you've got a lot on, so you might not be across this. Who would have thought two arch enemies are having a 12-hole golf off <laughs> in, of all places, Vegas? You know what it reminded me of? Um, you know when just two crap boxes uh, of yesteryear, you know, have a thought one night and they're like, you know what we should do? We should fight again. And they organise this fight and they get all this money and the, and the fight goes for about two rounds and really they should have never got in there because it looked horrible. That's what this reminds me of. It's Danny Green and Mundine yeah, again, exactly. past their prime, but getting together and saying, there's coin here, or, let's or go. Tyson Holyfield when they're 70, get them in there again, yeah, have another go. Um, you know, it just is, it, it's, it screams of uh, we, we need extra cash, but they don't. So I don't know what's going on. Did you see Holyfields, by the way, making making a comeback? Oh. I think unless he's the one who's dead, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm fairly sure that uh, he's he's made a comeback, or maybe he has. And certainly, Manny Pacquiao had another go. But isn't it just rubbish? I mean, one, it's a badly kept secret um, that they were ever going to do this. But just the crap of oh, we've had the love in at the Ryder Cup, we hugged, and now we're going to play golf, which they've been talking about for six to eight weeks at least. I've got to be honest, though. Um, I, I honestly think like something has to be – there's got to be a reason for this because neither of them need the cash. They're multi-millionaires at the top of the game, the pair of them. Um, I just don't – I just don't see why they're doing it. I mean, maybe it is outlandish money they're getting for the day, and that's the, the whole point of why they're doing it, because it couldn't be about PR for them. I don't, yeah, it's got me beat. Well, maybe um, Bryson actually put into play the driver that he's been criticising for so long that he's never <laughs> used in the World Long Driving Championships. But I, I've, here's my last analogy, and, and we'll move on from that because I hate it. <laughs> just like everybody likes seedless watermelons, I think it's time for a pipless PGA Tour. <laughs> they've got to bench this whole PIP thing because it's resulting in crap. And when you've got someone on Twitter like Jim Herman, who's awesomely just taking the piss out of the whole process, saying, yeah. I ate a carrot today, like this and share it so I can get my share of PIP. It, it, I'll tell you um, what, though, the, um, I just I used to love uh, watching Shell's Wonderful World of Golf, like, and I still do, you know. And But that was real golf 
and and yeah. two players that were going out there kind of not bantering they were just playing and it was all about their skills yeah. and you know the chance to get the i guess their swings on camera and up close to the person you know that you never got to see sarazen and and and, and um Hogan and these guys play, you know, under th- that kind of environment, I suppose. So that from that point of view, I do not, I quite like the grudge match, you know, you know, that that's all right. But these are, you don't really get to know much about the player other than them trying to be funny. And it's, it, it, it's got nothing to do with kind of the traditions of the game and learning a bit about what they do, which is what, you know, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf is all about. So it's lost its way, the old grudge match. Yeah, well, well, because growing the games is irrelevant mm, yeah. to all of them because they're getting, as you say, they're getting so much money and you don't, like Shell's world, have got why are you hitting this shot? How yeah. are you going to hit it? What are you thinking as you're Absolutely. going in? Is the learning aspect as opposed to two complete novels, even though I love one of them. And actually, don't mind the other one. Um, but together, it's just, I can't think of anything worse. While I think of it, can you off the top of your head name a couple of other grudge matches that you would have liked to have seen in golf where there was genuine – I'll go with Norman and Feldo, but are there, have you got a couple yeah, of Feldo, grudge matches where you just know? Norman and Feldo would have had a grudge match, but no one would have talked for 18 holes. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> so that, that wouldn't have worked. Um, I'll go for Rory Sabatini. Right? Everybody. At, out there with um, Angwell Cabrera, right, except – except you've got to try to anger Angwell somewhere. And then the two of them okay. would just blow up because he, he used to wear his heart on his sleeve anyway, and uh, and Rory has got some serious issues. So between the two of them, I reckon that would have been an entertaining day. Well, I think the Slovakian Rory probably would have just had to have pretended that he was Angel's wife. And oh, it isn't that uh, quite violent what a tip rat, huh? Yeah, who saw that coming? What a disgrace, yeah. Anyway, let's, let's move on because he, he – he, he, <laughs> Oh, I used to have respect for that man, and uh, it's completely gone. So we okay. Let, let, let's park that second uh, on my agenda. The long drive. So the World Long Drive Championships, and I, again, we're not going to dwell on this too much. Um, so Bryson competed in the World Long Drive Championships the week after the Ryder Cup. We all we all know that, um, and it was so well promoted and so well embraced that I'm not sure, other than the guy who won it, which I had to look up his name. Joel Birkenshaw. And I think there was there's one of the um, there's a German guy who did well. So in terms of how much we embrace it, as opposed to just seeing what Bryson can do in it, but what's the fear in it? There's been a lot of old school golf stuck in their way journos. Effectively, oh, it's just a dumbing down of the sport. What's the fear in watching an elite athlete? Um, show some prowess, even though it is only one skill of the game of golf. Because a wedge off is not that exciting, <laughs> and a putt off is something you do after. Well, hang on, hang on. A wedge off would be exciting if you got Mo Norman in there against Hogan. Now that oh, I'd watch that until the cows come home. I mean, they'd never do the outside about two feet. Um, but okay. yeah, don't change it. Wedge yeah, off anyway. Exactly right. But I think the only um, animosity drawn at this is is from people that can't do it. That's it, right? So the only people that are angry are people that are like, this is dumbing down my sport because there's so many other beautiful parts of this game that you've got to, be, got to get good at, and these guys are getting kudos for being strong and big. Uh, that's the only angle I can come at it from that, that is, a, I guess, a downside to it because it is 
basically what people do at driving ranges. <laughs> I've <I'm>, <laughs> witnessed this for about 30 years, right? I roll up the driving ranges and I'm sitting there trying to practice and nobody practices. They just belt driver. Um, so it's what the world does. And and I did watch a bit of it. Um, I was enthralled, i got to be honest, with, with what Bryson was doing because, you know, being out on tour for as long as I was and knowing how much people refined their swings and controlled their game and, and harnessed accuracy over length. That was a you know a huge part of the nineties and two thousands. Um, it's it's just totally changed the game. His attitude to it. Now, what what I'll, I'll quickly say here is, if you go back and look at the greatest players on the planet, really over the last you know hundred years, every single one of them basically was an enormous um, hitter of the golf ball. I mean, Nicholas yeah. in his prime outdrove everybody. Tiger in his prime was dwarfing people so much so that they changed golf courses. So what Bryson's doing isn't anything new. What what he's doing that's new is he's yelling from the rooftops that he's doing it. That's all. That's all he's done, right? And that's changed people's, oh, geez, you know, long driving's the, the way it is. No, long driving has been like this the whole time. Um, so I think from that perspective, he's, he's changed the game because of his mouth. Um, and his body shape changed to chase something, which I, I totally respected. And I, like, I for one loved watching that on the weekend. It was pretty cool. And, and I think there's this element of, and you go back, as you say, old school long drives, like Ted Ray was renowned for hitting it forever. Norman. Um, but that's right, the, the whole way through the, the journey. But then we go to um, any elite sport, and the slam dunk competition in the NBA All-Star Weekend is not basketball, but as a basketball fan, I'm allowed to watch it and love it. Brett Rainbow, who Dav, the Dav man would love me bringing up, Brett Rainbow, who was a hell of a, a second-tier basketballer but just happened to be an absolutely outstanding dunker of the basketball. But that was exciting and that was his moment. And so some of these guys have their moments. Like a Kyle Berkshire says, I'm not here to play on tour. Well, Martin hang on. Ball, no, no, he is. That's his whole thing over the last year. <laughs> He's trying to play on tour, but he 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 yeah. won't because he hasn't got the um the accuracy to, to get there. Um, he's grinding away at it, but I don't think we'll see him on tour. Uh, but he's trying. But there's a playing of the game, and this is the the nuances of the playing of the game versus one element of the game. And no, at no point in time are these guys saying, "Hey, long driving is golf." They're just saying, "Hey, this is an element of the game that just like, man, if you can get that stupid holy moly as a show." <laughs> and get everyone to get behind it, then why shouldn't you? I mean, I, I just don't understand the same people who weren't caning holy moly right. are caning Bryson's attempt at this long drive and saying it's making a mockery of the sport. And I've got a quote here from a journalist, and, and a poly- I don't want to name him because it's not about shaming a journalist because you're allowed to have an opinion, but it's basically a dumbing down of the sport, but isn't that pretty much where golf leadership wants the sport to go in the hopes of reaching a younger audience? So why would they do anything? So they're saying it as this. Hey, this way, wait, wait. There's a con- the biggest contradiction in the world in, in that statement anyway, and the fact that, yes, they're trying to get a younger audience, and that is a good thing for golf, and yet you're saying it's back. Whoever that is is interesting, let's say. Let's just put it at that. But the, but that's the point is that, and we've spoken about this a lot, that do we actually want to grow the game or is there this old school where on one hand we're saying grow the game, grow the game, and on the other hand we're saying get the bloody handbrake yeah. on. Because and we'll go into technology, and I've got another couple of left field ones for you later on. But 
But why would they do anything? Why would they do anything? Like Bryson, <laughs> like there are so many eyeballs on it. It was entertaining. Gosh. And watching a guy swing it at that speed, and not only him, but when you've got your mate Kyle and Big Marty, moving the club head as quickly as they're moving it, it you can't hit it. You're not allowed to hit it 400 yards sideways. Yeah. You've still got to land it in a, well, I mean, it's a reasonable area. It's like half the size of Texas. But you've... The straighter you are, the longer it is going to go. So they are, and you've made this point before, that Bryson's ability to gain length and as a percentage gain accuracy is extraordinary. Uh, I um, I loved it and uh, can't can't get enough of anyone that's just yelling from the trees but can do something. I just think it's cool. Yeah, and you know what? If I could do a 360 windmill dunk from the free throw line (laughs) but not shoot a free throw... (laughs) Do you reckon I wouldn't be doing it because I don't want to offend the basketball yeah. purists? Like, oh, what would Jerry West yeah. say? Well, Jerry West would smile. It's just that all these grumpy old shitheads in golf but all, can't but let the, go. The funny part about it for me too is, Philip, like, let's be honest, golf's pretty boring, right? It is. That's the reality of golf, right? There's some yeah. very exciting elements to it. But if you compare watching golf to watching basically any other sport, to a novice that's never watched golf before, gee whiz, it's it's tough, tough gig. Between that and test cricket, they'd, they'd struggle to know which one was more boring. But when you get to love golf, just like test cricket, there is you can watch every ball and be enthralled or you can watch every yeah. golf shot and be enthralled. But the fact that this is just nonstop entertainment for anybody who's never seen the game before and some numbers to go with it, the distance, the club head speed, the mile per hour on the ball, it's it's nothing but good for the game. I think my favourite part of watching the the whole event, or or certainly bits of it, um, was a commentator who was so desperate to show his prowess. Like these guys are swinging in the the blink of an eye, they've swung and they've hit it. Man, he looked good at the top. I said he looked good at the top. I said he looked good at the top. Like he just wanted someone to acknowledge that. I called that just before he hit it. Like I called that a millionth of a millisecond. And that's a really small amount of time before he hit it. I told you he looked at the top. I told you he looked at the top. That was all he wanted to say. I reckon he said it 15 times. I told you he looked at the top. There's a small YouTube clip. Um, I recommend anyone listening to this to go and watch it. It, it goes for about 30 seconds, and it's when Bryson's in the uh, the final eight, and he's with Berkenshire and Marty and, a, and one other guy. But anyway, long story short, he's down to the final eight, and he, and he hits the lead with a 417-yard drive. And the guy loses his filter, the commentator, and it's it, he goes, "I don't know if you're allowed to swear," and then just unloads swearing, and it's a, it is quite a, a thirty second clip. I love it, and there was some comments underneath it. It was just like, "Now that is commentary," and it's just, he just got so excited that nah, it was good, and uh, I, I enjoyed it anyway. And if it brings the game, I mean, it is not golf. It's a long driving competition. So let go of the fact that it's not golf, but it gives you a chance to celebrate an element of golf, just like Holy Moly does. And if we can get this wedge off, <laughs> then I reckon there's something in that because I think watching if they're watching a backspin competition where we equip all the players with their modern wedge technology and then everyone just immediately plays two edition, <laughs> I, I think would be extraordinary. Can you replicate Norman spinning balls off the green at the PGA? Like that was the, the whole objective is to watch, try and replicate him ripping it back into the rough so Bob Twain can Everyone gets the ping eye two square grooves and they have a go and away we go. And the tourists, and you'll only, they only last for one yeah. hit, but boy, <laughs> will they move through the air. I'm in and I'm going to watch that. So just to, just to take it down a, a notch or a slight notch. Now, I've been watching a lot more um, women's golf and immediately Shooter's thought was, 
well, at least because you're eighty percent as long as them, and it's not true because I'm not that close to them. No, they would still fall past you. I'm further, I'm, I'm further behind than that. And, and Cameron Champ, Operation Champ, appears to have died. Um, but it is becoming more popular to watch at an elite level, um, and not only because of what they do, but also in terms of how they carry themselves and the joy that they celebrate. And and a few of them have gone through. Um, the Sooks uh, and Lydia Coe had a Sookie period, but then rediscovered her, her love and passion for the game. And and watching um, Minji Lee and Gayun Song and at the KLPGA um, last week, there was just a joy. I, I love being out here. But my question to you, and I know we've spoken about this before, but I obviously wasn't listening. <laughs> Should we try and emulate their swings? And if yes or no, can you tell us why? Well, I think it's it's not so much trying to emulate just lady swings or, or, or men's swings, but what you can see a bit clearer, I suppose, in a um, in a lady swing, well, not all of them because some of them are quite fast these days, but in some of the lady swings is more tempo-based fluency. And because you can see it easier because um, the club head speed isn't necessarily as fast, uh, it just you can start to pick up things that are nice and smooth and actually help your game. Um, you know, there's that old saying of uh, the Harvard study for basketball, you'd know this one really well, where, you know, they've got three sets of people, tested them all um, for shots on goal from the free throw, and they took those three separate groups and one didn't shoot a basketball. They just watched people do it and, and TV of how to do it. The other group um, shot some with some instruction and then watched people do it who were very good at it, and the third lot just shot nonstop uh, and practised. And the the one that always wins is the one that, that watches people do it and does a bit of practice, um, which is the middle one. And ironically, the people, I think in that study, that came second were the ones that never actually um, shot a ball for the week. They just watched good people do it and got instruction of how to do it. And the ones that lost were the people that trained nonstop for a week. <laughs> so um, the reason that that's like relevant to this conversation is because Seeing someone do something good is then how we learn. It's how babies learn, right? It's how humans learn. You copy, you mimic. And therefore, we can mimic and see the fluency and, and the technical prowess of a lot more lady swings than men's swings purely because of the tempo of them. So, yeah, um, emulate away. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a great thing to actually watch just pure timing and, and rhythm. It's funny you say that about purely um... – Watching and I actually swing it faster when I watch because in my head I'm I'm so long. <laughs> um, but I was watching a, an old video of uh, um, there's a guy called Mike Dunaway who was the longest hitter in the late 80s. Norman and Daly both said longest hitter ever. In fact, there's a Cleveland driver that I've got. What's, a, a what's his name? Classic, sorry, Mike Dunaway. Ah. Uh, and there's a Cleveland classic driver called the Dunaway, which was named in, in his honour. Just hit it forever. He's sadly passed away. Just hit it forever. And this whole video sequence was a man speaking, saying, here is the takeaway. And then it was just Mike Dunaway hitting another shot and then another shot, another at shot. normal pace. Now front on. Yes, at normal pace. Now front on, another shot. And the whole premise of it was learning through observation mm. and uh, what I suppose um, yeah, purely what you're what you're witnessing as opposed to what you're trying and what you're doing. Which and that's is- how a lot of NLP works, you know. Um, basically, the, you know, the same sort of premise. So yeah, it it's, it really works well. So yeah, in answer to your question, um, 
it's it, the, the, it is great to watch great rhythm and and um, fluency, and a lot of the ladies have that as opposed to kind of just you know the, sometimes the fast rawness of some of the other um, goal swings that we could never really emulate most of us. Yes, because you can't see what they're doing, or you don't realise exactly how yeah, far you, off the ground fo- they're jumping. And your focus too drifts. Like when I watch someone like, or for these days we use Bryson as the the catalyst for this. But when I watch Bryson, I'm not necessarily looking at technique that much. I'm more looking at the wait for him to hit it, wait for him to hit it. Oh, let him hit it! Like you just you're yeah. waiting yeah. for the power. And the, the same when you get a, a a Dustin Johnson up there, and you're like watch him just bow this wrist and smash a fade. Like you you're looking at that. Whereas if I watch someone like Oh, old school had a really sort of slow and fluent swing like a Sam Snead. It wasn't slow actually through impact, but beautiful no, rhythm to the top and then a great, you know, kind of leg drive and all the rest of it. It's it's just easier to look at because you're sort of looking at that fluency and you're not taken in by the, the raw power of it. Which is the amazing thing about for now, for now, is Oops. that you can watch Tony for now and it looks like you're watching a guy do something in slow yeah. motion that is happening at a speed that, is out of this world, which which in a sense implies control. I see that in um, I see that in John Rahm too. Like I, I look at Rahm, he hits at a mile, but it but it doesn't look like he does. Like he he looks like he's quick on the downswing, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's sort of the same thing. It's um, it's controlled power by those two two athletes for now, and 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 Rahm, and so therefore it's probably yet again coming back to that conversation. It's easier to watch those from a timing and efficiency and and something to mimic than it is to watch a you know John Daly swing over the top, lift the arms and you know beat the hell out of it. It just it doesn't resonate with as many people. Yeah, or, or Scheffler's mum or any of the more yeah, absolutely, swings yeah. like Daniel Berg or, or otherwise. Because there was another element that that I wondered about with women's golf, uh, and it probably lends some weight to our previous mate when we're talking about the long drive competition and the, the idea of a rollback of technology. I, I wonder whether people are observing it uh, and uh, maybe a lot of the old school ones are observing it, wishing for a time when that was kind of the limits on things. I wonder whether they're almost watching it. Maybe I, I don't know because I, I look at, like, especially the, you know, the, one of the greatest players of all time for women, or two two of them I can think of, um, Mickey Wright and, and Laura Davies, both would outdrive most players on the planet. <laughs> That's the reality. Yes. I mean, those two ladies hit it yeah. so far; it was scary. Right, so it's not like um, we haven't seen girls bomb it and lead the field in what they do. It's just that I think a lot of them swing more smoothly, and it's not all at the moment for for, for ladies golf. It's not all about power. Now I'm sure that's going to change. I really do. I think that'll change a lot over the next five to fifteen years because um, bombing it like Laura did or Mickey Wright did is a huge advantage. It's huge, right? Especially if your peers aren't going at it hard. So, um, I think why people are watching it more is more saturation of it. Um, especially I know in Australia, I mean, golf channel in America has been brilliant for golf because it's, it's shown golf to the masses over and over and over 24 hours a day. Whereas, you know, when I was little, you turned on this TV in Australia, you got golf once in a blue moon. Uh, that was about yeah. it. So, and, and ladies' golf was hardly ever shown. Um, you might get the odd Australian Open show, like you just didn't get it. Now, most people have got streaming services. When they flick on, they type in the word golf, and thank God they do because we come up golf baron. Thank you. <laughs> well, on, on both Foxtel on demand, Amazon America, come on. Um, but but when they do type in golf, it's not just 
there's one tournament. It's a heap, and a lot yeah. of it is ladies. And also, when you've got the the um, the uh, linear channel, um, sorry, my, my microphone just got hit there. Uh, when we've got the linear channel, uh, it's on there all the time as well. So it's shown more. Um, that's definitely one part of it. It's um, good to watch because uh, you got so many good athletes out there now, you know, and always did have, but basically now are highlighted and their swings are highlighted and the camera work on the on the um, the footage is really good, so you get to watch things a bit more. So, yeah, I think there's a number of reasons, but uh, yeah, I don't know if it's because they want to be rolled back to that's how it used to be, but it's probably way more relatable for most of the population than just these four to five kind of um, amazing athletes that are number one through four yeah. in the world that bang it four billion miles that none of us could ever do. Do you think that that once and there's no question that at some point in time men's golf will be rolled back. Um, but do you think if men's golf were to be rolled back and if they were to take 25% off the length, that does that for you become, and I know you're not an avid golf watcher because you do busy teaching and name dropping, but <laughs> would, would, would the product become more watchable to you if, if limits were put no. on it or less watchable? I would say less. Yeah. And, and the, what the irony of it all is, Philip, is it doesn't really matter, right? Roll it back 50%. Who cares? Because the biggest drivers are still going to drive it the furthest. They're still going to have a bigger advantage. Like it doesn't make any difference. The only way they could purely cap it, and it's not fair, is produce a ball that's squished out at a certain mile an hour, you know, like a squash ball. <laughs> you can swing at a squash ball, flat matter, and it's going nowhere because it squishes on the club face too much. So, But if you swing it at a certain speed, it'll ricochet off the most it possibly can and go the furthest distance. So the only way they could really bring it back and not give anyone an advantage of hitting it further <laughs> is make a ball that capped out at a certain mile an hour and then everyone could just swing at that speed. But that's just utterly ridiculous, never going to happen. So the longer drivers are always going to have advantage, as they have over the last 100 years, Rolling it back so courses are more protected, I get that. I understand that. Um, maybe that is something they could do. Uh, and then players will have a seven iron in their hand instead of a wedge and, and the game might become a little bit more challenging for them. But, you know, is it, is Does that- it become more interesting to you as a viewer? And not that this is even a topic for tonight because we want to tackle... But if, if they roll it back for the pros, they're probably going to, you know, they might have that rolled back for the punters in their comps, but maybe not. We've seen that in some of the um, the Asias as well, where people are allowed to use, you know, ballooning or trampolining face drivers, but they're not allowed yeah. to use them in. So I don't know. I, I Yet again, I, I go back to the same old thing. You look at all the greatest sports, like your F-run cars and all the rest of it, they roll them back all the time, but they find a way, don't they, to keep improving. And, and that's going to be the way for for golf, it's just whether they cap stuff for a dis- from a distance point of view for just the tour. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they, they, they probably will have to, as you say, but still the biggest drivers are going to hit it the furthest. And you've seen me hit it and you know that I don't need anything that's going to take distance <laughs> off me. So, no, and, then, uh, and that's also, I, I think it was Rory McIlroy or someone was saying that anyway a few months ago, is that all if you're going to roll stuff back, all you're really hurting is the population. So I think golf development can't, do that too much because with a lot of the clients that I play with, they're lucky to hit the ball 150 to 180 metres. That's the reality. And every second shot they've got into a par four is with their three wood or their five wood. And the game is so hard for them as it is. So rolling it back a little bit for those guys and girls is just, they're lucky to make the fairway. 
And, why, and I suppose as an extension to that, because the Dunhill Links was on at, at St Andrews over the weekend and there was conversation about um, one of the Hogards and me and Narba, um, Wilco Nienaba from South Africa, I mean, who just hit it forever. But, I mean, these guys are prodigious, mm-hmm. like longer than anyone. Yeah, and one came 16th and one came 35th. Yeah. Like they didn't win and they didn't win by 10 shots. Yeah. So it's kind of like if I'm watching the old course at St Andrews and I'm watching an event there, do I really care? Like does it hurt me personally if a pro tears it up or hits um, 9-on to 17 when Seve used to have to hit 3-on? Mm. Like does that piss me off or do I just love the fact that it's the road hole? Yeah. And, you know, when I get there, I know that I'm hitting driver over the O in old course hotel and then – flubbing four iron just short of the bunker on the left mm. and hitting it over onto the path and trying to get up and down off the path nest of the wall. I know, and, and it's sort of a, a funny one too because if, you, if you're going to roll it back so players are hitting three iron in, um, you know, then you're going to have to d- spend a bit of time on the greens there <laughs> to make sure that the scores, can, you know, because golf courses were never as manicured as they are today. Um, putting, you know, is one of the things today where you, around the hole is just usually quite beautiful. It used to be train wreck with the spikes and you you would have played in that era as well as me philip i mean geez you get a two footer you were never you were never giving them up back in the day <laughs> no you may as well it, it was a stymie of a spike mark as opposed to a stymie of a golf ball exactly in your right. so yeah there's certainly going to be some things that have to change too if um if they're rolling things back where people are going to have to ping long irons into holes they're not designed that way these days either a lot of the a lot of the courses they've changed their designs a little bit um, so yeah, look, it's the same old uh, discussion we've had for years, and it, it keeps evolving. But I think they'll do some slow things, as you say, to to bring it back a bit. But yeah, ultimately the same problem exists, and the big hitters are going to be big. Um, they're going to be big, and, and again, as we'll, we'll dive into this in, in a podcast at a later date. But there's a lot going on, and then one of the interesting things, as you say, about green speed and about landing areas and all the rest of it. There's these beautiful images, um, and again, in our Barron's Life magazine, you're going to see a hell of a lot of the great greens or some of the great greens of world golf. But Sitwell Park, and a lot of conversation, there was a Mackenzie green at Sitwell Park that's got 85 tiers, and it looks like a theme park. It looks like mm. a roller coaster. But but they could do it because the greens weren't running at Exactly 12. right. They were running at seven, and you actually had to hit a putt as opposed to tap a putt. Yeah. And it, it gave you options about pin positions and it gave you options about all these other things. So so maybe it is is that, look, we'll roll it back, but we've got to now actually rethink all of the preparation stuff. So it's not about mm-hmm. roll it back, but but leave the greens, you know, running at, at 12 or, or do these other things. It's actually, okay, okay, let's, what if we roll it back, leave the greens a little bit longer, like firm, but slightly yeah. longer or whatever the case may be. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah there's... there's... The brain's trust will have a go at something, Philip. Yeah, they, they will try something. Now, I've got a, um, a question that's taken us a long time to get to, and sorry, Danielle, um, via a direct message from Instagram, that it has taken us a while. European tour, or tours in general, why does a player choose one tour over another other than necessity? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's changed a lot in the last 25 years. I remember when I started out there caddying um, in the late 90s, it, you you were told as an Australian, go to Europe first, do your craft, do your tenure, and then go and have a crack at America if you're good enough. You, you were just never – no one was allowed, basically, <laughs> to go to America yeah. first. Yeah. Um, and I remember Adam Scott and Bads were, were, were kind of a couple of the – 
the lads that changed that early from a male perspective. They were they went straight there. Adam obviously in college and Baz just straight out. And but Aaron ended up back at the European tour in, in a few years because uh, wasn't making cuts. And um, not that the European tour is easier at all. That's different um, uh, for a number of reasons. But it just it's not as, um, I suppose, saturated from a – not saturated, that's the wrong word. It's not as sterile. Uh, it's more of a loving environment and an encouraging environment, and I think that's why players are told to go and – or were told to go and play there versus America's a lot more, um, you know, everyone's got their own hotel, no one talks to you much, um, it's a lot more sterile. Has therefore bypassing – and there's been a modern trend – um, that may be corrected, but do you think bypassing the European Tour has potentially hurt Australian professional golf? Do you think do you think players get a, a grounding by going to Europe? Yeah. Like we, we're seeing Lucas Herbert and Minwoo Lee at the moment, yeah. uh, and your mate Brian McPherson yeah. um, and Mav Ancliffe, uh, Jason Scrivener. I mean, they're, they're cutting their teeth in Europe, yeah. maybe with aspiration of going to the US, but maybe just with aspiration of being a great, as good as they can be. Mm. Um, Yet others have, have tried to bypass it and go straight to the US. Has that, has that hurt Australian golf more than Look, I, I, I think it just hurts golf in general. No matter where you're coming from, if you go straight, usually go straight to America at the moment because their professional tour, you know, the PGA Tour, um, is got, just flooded with elite players. Any one of that 150-odd players that plays each week can win. They're that good. And as a result, you go to other t- tours – and it's really quite top-heavy in terms of, you know, only really 15 to 30 guys from that tour or girls from that tour can win because it's just the depth isn't there, right? So when people are trying to go to the PGA Tour, they're, they're seeing that as the best tour in the world. Now, that's debatable, but that's how most people view it. And because it's viewed that way and the money's there, um, it gets the best players consistently. And and so, so as a result, it's harder to get in. You miss cuts. It's, I mean... You know, it's, it's actually, I mean, pre-qualifying this week for the Shriners, I don't know if you saw that, but, you know, <laughs> it was 10 under and 8 under. Like, oh, just to get in. Like, it's just ridiculous what you've got to shoot for one round of golf. Um, Bad's actually rang me. He goes, I played pretty good, shot 6U and missed by 4. <laughs> like, you know, like that's crazy golf. Um, but that's the depth of the talent. And therefore, going over there, it's actually a bit difficult really over the last 10 years because if you don't, get on the tour, main tour, then you go to either, what's it called now? Is it, it's not nationwide. What's the secondary tour? It used to be Nike tour. Yeah. Uh, Corn country. So you try to get on that. If you can't get on that, you go and play Gateways or Golden Bears or, you know, Pepsi tour or Pretty whatever different. it might be. Yeah. So you're going into other areas and, and you become, oh, I think anyway, you, you almost become unsettled. There's no routine. And then when you get a chance to go, pre-qualify for a US tour event or get him one. There's a lot of pressure to perform because you know, geez, it's going to be hard to get back into one. Whereas European tour isn't like that. And I think that's why it's it's, it's a pretty good option for a lot of people to go and start playing there um, because you can kind of blood yourself a little bit more. Um, the depth is still quite high there, but they don't, the courses aren't set up anywhere near like America where you have to shoot billions under. It's a lot more Australian based, where you know, shoot par or one or two under, and you're going to be thereabouts probably for the weekend. It doesn't happen in America, you've got to go nuts. So, it's a different style of game. Um, so to get back to your question, um, wrong, long answer, but to get back to your question, I think players are better off going to a, 
a tour and we call it the European tour, where they got a chance to sit with their game for a while rather than feeling like they have to peak every single week. And that's what America puts on people that, that are trying to go over there and break into it. You have to peak or else you ain't playing. And and that that you don't see that in Europe. You can kind of, you know, chug along a little bit and, and find your feet and, and, and therefore run yourself into form. Um, and that's, again, when we look at, as I say, Minwoo Lee, but particularly Lucas Herbert yeah. um, under Supercoach Dom as a party. I mean, the second, sorry, the second Supercoach after you, oh, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and watching him develop his game in Europe as, as again, the number of people that I've reeled off. And there was a basketball coach, and because Shooter's not here, I'm allowed to bring up basketball. <laughs> um, a guy out of Canada, a guy called Kirby Shep, and he was very big on don't teach kids plays, teach them how to play mm-hmm. And I wonder whether or not Europe teaches, because golf courses in the US are so homogenous, I wonder whether it gives people a chance to learn to play golf in Europe as opposed to you go to the US and you play US golf. And what's interesting is when you look at someone like Cam Smith, who spends a year on the Asian tour before going to the US, Mm. you know, in Asia, you're throwing a lot of different curveballs. Um, now, a lot of different I, I think there's absolute merit in, in what you're saying. And, and I remember, I only use my own example here, but when, when Bads broke into you know world golf in the late 90s, he was so, you know, his absolute heart set on playing in America. And that's where we went for a couple of seasons. And and because there was so much pressure, we had seven starts a year. <laughs> that's it. And as a result, you had to get in there, try to make a cut and finish well, just so you were around for the next event. And then we went to Europe and we spent a year in Europe. Um, and that was my easily the, the greatest year of my life on tour. <laughs> it was because it was, I found, you know, friends at every door and not just caddies. I mean, I was partying with all the players and all Go the on. officials. Man, and, oh, I can name good. drop Philip. Just give me that chance. Um, well, me and Justin Rose spent nearly every weekend together. Oh, <laughs> that was his infamous year in 27 cuts. It was probably because of me. Um, but, <laughs> but the truth, truth be known, it was um, a totally different environment than what we encountered in America as two young kids. We went over to America and, you know, everyone has their own hotel and their own car and they go to tournaments uh, by themselves with nobody else and they and they leave their tournaments on some on their private jets and others in business class and blah, blah, blah. And we were two kids and we were rolling around, you know, cattle class and where we could iron cars together and all the rest of it. Well, go to Europe, you know, the third year out on tour, I just couldn't believe it. We're catching buses with you know, Michael Campbell and, and Lee Westwood and he's sitting next to him on a bike. Hey, Lee, how you doing? Yeah, it was your steak last night. Like it, it was a totally and utterly different um, environment and that no doubt made you calmer because you didn't feel like, uh, I suppose, the, the peers around you were any better than you. They were just you and 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 it just it was just an easier well, – I shouldn't say it was easier golf, but it was an easier environment to, to definitely blood yourself, no doubt about it. So you grew up, therefore, both as golfer, as caddy, but as human more in Europe as opposed to just 100%. existing. Yeah, yeah. So if at any point in time the uh, the PGA or Golf Australia were to tap on the shoulder of Dion Kipping, <laughs> given a man with your breadth of experience both in Europe and the US and otherwise, and you were to sit down in a room full of aspiring tour professionals, and we're going to get on to why there aren't enough yep. of them, um, aspiring tour professionals about directions to take, your advice would be? My advice would be this. 
whether it's Europe, whether it's Asia or America, do not take yourself out of the routine you've gathered to become great. Okay, so that's what they do wrong. They they are here. They're surrounded by their friends. They're surrounded by their family. They're surrounded by a golf course that's usually just down the road. They're surrounded by ease of practice facilities, and they're surrounded by home life and comforts when things don't go well. That's how players become great in this country. And the minute they go to what's called America, they haven't got their friends, they haven't got their family. It's hard to get on to practice places because, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a golf pro, they, they don't care necessarily. You haven't got, to, you know, Bob down the road who knows someone from Kingswood, right? They then have a bad day. They go home to wherever they're staying, a hotel or whatever. There's no one there. You've got to call someone on your phone. <laughs> You've got no one to, to um, de- de-stress with. And all of a sudden it becomes a job, a real job. And like, like any job, you have bad days. And when you've got bad days, they don't have any way out. So what they do when they go to the, especially the US tour, is they haven't created an environment like they created here where they became great. And therefore, if they choose somewhere like a Europe, there's a chance that they can, you know, be with other players or be with um, other caddies or even other friendship groups. And a lot of Australians, let's be honest, have, have family over in Europe as well. And a bad week, you know, fly to the uncle in Scotland, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and that will and their coaches they they disassociate themselves from their coaches that they've had all the time because they can't afford one over there um, or, or afford to take theirs over there. So, yeah. in answer to your question, if I was jumping up and down at a um a lectern giving a, a lecture, right, my number one thing is create an environment that is the same as what you have here before you leave on any tour, whether it's Asia, America, Australia, um, or the UAE, whatever it is you're going for. Just try to create an environment before you go. You heard it here first, Kim. Because <laughs> um, it leads to an extension. There, there's a couple of other topics. And one was, therefore, the PGA Tour. And I, I went through this the other day because my, my overarching question is, was there more pure talent in Australian golf in the mid to late 90s or in the 90s than there is today? And I'll, here's for, for people who are a little bit uh, younger listeners, that's me, Here's what the tournament, yeah, well, other than me, sorry, for anyone younger than me um, who weren't there to celebrate this, here's the tournament lineup from 1996. Which tournament? In Australia. Uh, and I'm not talking about the players. I'm talking about the list of tournaments oh, sorry, that happened sorry, in sorry. Australia or Australasia. But no, it's a reasonable question. Johnny Walker Classic, Heineken Classic, the Ford Open, Ericsson Masters, Cannon Challenge, the Far North Queensland Open, or it just says FK. I'm hoping, oh, the Oh, yeah, okay. The, the Fook Queensland Open. <laughs> the Players' Championship, the Alfred Dunhill Masters, the MasterCard PGA, Holden Australian Open. I know all these businesses now broke. Um, the Greg Norman Holden Classic, the Air New Zealand Open, and the Schweppes Corn Classic. So that was your lineup of, of events. Now, the PGA Tour with their wraparound season and all the other crap. And I know that's 25 years ago, and I'll let go of the past. Like other, I'm not, because you've just golf. described one of the great summers I just ever had there. <laughs> <laughs> But but look and then and then just to go through the winners, um, Ian Woosnam won a couple. Greg Norman, Craig Perry, Peter Senior, Steve Elker, the absolute flusher, and now going okay on the Champions Tour. Bradley Hughes, um, talk about super coaching. Mm. Um, Bernard Langer, Phil Tatarangi, man could play as well. Um, Greg Norman, Peter Senior, Michael Long could play as well. It was the year of the New Zealander uh, and Anthony Painter. Um, 
but this question of, of talent, and, and I wonder whether or not, I'm getting to a point, and I don't want to let you glide about your summit because I just had to pay to get into these events while you were there hobnobbing <laughs> and sipping champagne because I'm oh, sure yeah, that's they, all you're they, doing. They let you in everywhere. Sure, not no why. Well, with beds.com. But um, there was this caddy golfers of Spain, and Jimenez, um, when I was having dinner with oh, Miguel. The infamous dinner night. Uh, he was talking about, <laughs> but he was talking about the caddy golfers versus the manufactured golfers and how Jimenez was the last, and I've mentioned it before, the last of the caddy golfers, and Olathebal was the beginning of the manufactured golfers, the golfers who went through the high-performance academy versus who just learned to play mm-hmm. however they could. I wonder, and I know you're a super coach now, I wonder, did have we gone through an overcoached era? So if we go through the raw, just the raw talent of the 90s, we have... So Richard Green, so there's some Australians only for international listeners, but Richard Green, so won the Dubai Classic in, in 97, knocked off uh, Woozy and Greg Norman in the playoff, went okay, left-hander. Um, Shane Tate, flusher, um, Brad Forrester, Bear, Craig Spent, Scotty Wern, Paul Sheehan, Rod Pampling, Darren Cole, like great Australasian players, Norman, Elkington, Allenby, Senior, Perry, Lonard, Riley, O'Malley, as a who's mm. who. Um, and we overlay that now. So, so they were just people who learned to play golf. And what was not there at this point in time was a launch monitor. Yes. So they weren't talking about numbers. They were just learning to play. And they were played in Europe. And the vast majority of the people that I've just mentioned there played in Europe or they played in Australia, um, yet made it up the world rankings. So did we have a greater amount of raw talent or was it just harder to be elite talent then than it is now? because of all the technology that kids are surrounded with today? Um, I, I think like any sport, things get better. So I, I, you know, golf's a hard one because it's all um, courses change and it's hard to compare eras and whatnot. But yeah. I think golfers th- these days are, are genuine jets. They really are. And it is hard to break in because it's uh, more flooded money, uh, more flooded with money and um, the depth is unbelievable. So probably yesteryear golfers, it might have been, I'm saying might have because I, I don't know, but it might have been just, you know, an easier environment to be out there all the time, right? Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that could be one element to it. But in terms of the overcoach thing, I think it's a really interesting one, and I do agree. I think people are overcoached. I really do. Um, I'll never forget a comment made by, um, I'm going to name drop here, Philip, um, Phil Mickelson, uh, sitting, sitting down. <laughs> Having a having a drink at his actually his bar, uh, he's got he's got his own oh. bar called Phil's Grill at the uh, the Greyhawk Golf Course where we used to train and we're in there one afternoon and just having a drink and um, got on to got great golfers and great swings. I've probably told this story before, but he I'll make it quick that he just uh, I, I ask him who who's the the great in his eyes the greatest swinger of the golf club, um, and he said, well he goes if you look in the modern era he goes I, I'd have to say Adam Scott's swing looks aesthetically probably the most pleasing. He goes, if you look at yesteryear, he goes, I'd say Hogan's yet again looks probably the most aesthetically pleasing and, and all the rest of it. He goes, but if I had to pick one, greatest swing that ever existed, he goes, I would pick Lee Trevino. And he goes, because he owned his swing. And it was a really interesting comment from somebody who clearly doesn't swing the club great. And he'll be the first to tell you that. He's just got that much talent, Philip. Uh, the other Philip. Uh, <laughs> I'll call, no, I'll call no, him Phil. Uh, but you have got talent too, mate. I've seen it. you play basketball, just haven't got it with golf. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, point is, um, yeah, Phil, 
you know, just knew how important it is to own, own a technique, your own technique. And that is something these days that because we've got, uh, and I say these days, it's really been happening in the last, you know, 25 years when people have got access to cameras more. Cameras started this, and I was one of them. I remember having my dad's big HSV camera down at the golf course, you know, so heavy to carry. And as soon as you can start analysing anything, there is a chance that if you don't know what you're talking about, you will have paralysis from analysis and you can dig yourself a grave. And that happens to so many players these days is they do, they overanalyze something they don't really know. um, And as a result, they overcoach themselves. Even if they've got a coach, I've seen, I've got them great clients that, that, come back to me with swing changes and I'm like, oh, what happened there? Oh, I watched this on YouTube and I looked at, I was filming myself out the back of my phone and I thought, oh, I'm like, I just, it's, it's amazing to me because they've got this plethora of, of information, but in a lot of ways they're not sure what to do with it other than give it a go. So I think that's a definite, absolute, it's, it's actually uncategorically. People are overcoached just these days, but probably by themselves almost. Um, yes, yeah, so so when it comes to practice and, and practicing with purpose, which we also talk a, a lot about, the minute they've got their launch monitors mm. there, then everything is a number thing as opposed to a what was that feeling thing. And and one of the the great things, and this is not a, a name drop uh, about something that I was part of, as opposed to something that I witnessed, was Tiger warming up before the last round of the Presidents Cup, where he would hit a shot, and then he'd consult with his notes, and he'd close his eyes. And he'd take a few deep breaths and then he'd hit another shot. And this was with seven irons at the time. And I've got video of him doing it. He hits a shot and then he looks down at his notes. Notes meaning the the launch one of the numbers? Course No, just course Ah, notes. So he was looking at at course notes or trying to create a feel or or trying to mimic the feel as opposed to the numbers. And and I wonder, like every every decision has got to be so data-driven. Now, and I understand there are weaknesses in gut feel, but feel still must exist. And I remember there was a famous story that I'm going to completely misquote. It might have never happened, um, but it was reported to have happened with Ted Ball, the rather quick-swinging um, Australian uh, superstar of the time. And apparently before the story goes that he was about to hit a, a long bunker shot uh, and a lady said to him, obviously in a, a primer otherwise, said, how do you know how hard to hit it? And he said, well, I've been playing golf a long time. You just do. Yeah. Proceeded to obviously think about what she just asked him and email the green. <laughs> um, and this idea of this idea of just what you learn, yeah. like learning feel and learning what mm. works, as opposed to always needing to consult with a number. And that was why I was wondering whether or not this the existence of launch monitors, the correlation of all that data based decision making and, and data based training. Um also then correlates with all this modern equipment. Yeah. Look, I, I think like anything, you can overdo it. Uh, and there's no doubt that there's tools at people's arsenal now to overdo it, both professionally and, and from an amateur standpoint. So launch monitors are, are nothing but good for this game. Um, they quantify your impact position, and therefore I love them. They, they quantify what you do six inches either side of the golf ball. And that has been the biggest breakthrough, in, in my opinion, in golf in the last 100 years. We now know what happens through impact to be a great player. We kind of had a sort of an idea, but now we know. And as a result, if you know what you're talking about and you know your golf swing, they can help you enormously. 
right? Enormously. But also what's what's detrimental is if you don't know your goal swing, you don't know what, let's call it numbers you're trying to shoot for, and you're trying to, let's say, average out the LPGA Tour numbers or the US PGA Tour numbers on, on, on TrackMan, let's call it, um, you got real problems, right? Um, because you're trying to achieve something that actually isn't right for you. So like anything, it's dangerous. Technology is brilliant, but it's dangerous because, you know, the old Spider-Man quote, with great power becomes great responsibility. <laughs> and you've got to know, you <laughs> know what you're doing. Um, and there, there lies the same thing. So, yep, to get back to it, Philip, yes, people are overcoached, probably by, by coaches, but definitely by themselves, and feel is nearly gone and it needs to come back. And just to finish on that, I got another name drop here, but I was in the master's hut, uh, media hut 2007 working for channel 10 and had one question to ask usually in the media hut tiger comes in and, um, my one question here, I love because it changed my life. Uh, one guy asked, uh, Hey Tigger, um, I saw you out there visualizing all the shots that obviously was working really well for you today. Something like that. And Tiger just stopped, stopped him in his tracks. He says, no, I don't visualize. He goes, I've never visualized a shot in my life. I don't know what that really means. Um, and I'm like, oh. And I said, so I just said, so what do you what do? You do? That's all I ask. <laughs> There's the question, what do you do? But that was, the, the answer to this changed my life because he said, well, he goes, I feel the shot. He goes, so when I'm behind my golf ball, I've got my club in my hand, he goes, and if I need to hit a 10-yard cut or, or a two-yard fade, he goes, I'm feeling that as I'm making my practice swing. and I'm looking at the sky to where that fade's going to go and and where it's going to, the height it's going to pitch. And he goes, I'm feeling that as I come down on my golf swing, what it's going to feel like to have my hands at that position through the impact zone to create that shot shape. He goes, so I feel shots. He goes, I don't visualize them. And that was in there, and then someone else jumped in. I had so many more questions, but I've done mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it totally changed my life because from that point onwards, I, I understood the visual aspect, what you see when you shut your eyes, and you know that you see this all the time with a lot of um, you know mind coaches. I, I get it, but what that's doing, if you do it correctly, allowing you to put that image into your body and ultimately into for golf your arms, and you feel it. And, and to, to, you know, follow up to your, to your um, point there, Philip, yes, feels totally gone. And, they, and it's really one of the biggest things in this game. Um, and I think, Kipper, with that story, it seems a perfect way to um, bring this Tenuous Links uh, podcast to a close. Um, so remember, uh, listeners, to subscribe at golfbarons.com to get the latest Barons Life, which Shooter is furiously working away on and he's going to be awesome at Digital Golf and Lifestyle Magazine and for all other Golf Barons news, golfbarons.com. And until next time, Barons, add some feel to your swing. (laughs) Goodbye.